that you're here. We have a good number present, considering the circumstance. We have a number of visitors, and we've already mentioned we're glad that you have come. Hope you can come back and be with us again. Uh, though during this time we're not rushing up and shaking everybody's hand and welcoming you, we want you to know that you are welcome if you're visiting with us. And we're glad to have several back who've been out because of this um, pandemic that we're facing. But we're glad that you've come back, and we're glad that others have joined us by, faith, uh, by uh, uh, Zoom as well. I encourage you to get a Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. That's where our study is going to be. We're going to be looking at a text, a textual study, and we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. For my own purpose, I call this chapter Questions About Marriage. And that's because the chapter is about questions about marriage. Look at verse 1. The text says, now concerning the things of which you wrote to me. So chapter 7 and verse 1 begins a section wherein Paul is addressing some things that they had asked him about. They had asked him a number of things about marriage. Let's go a little bit further. Chapter 8 and verse 1. Now concerning the things offered to idols, they must have asked him something about meat that had been sacrificed to idols. Go to chapter 12, verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, that phrase, now concerning, addresses back to the questions they had asked and they had directed to Paul. What were those questions? We don't have a copy of those. So how do we know what the questions are? We know what the questions were, at least the general tenor of the question, by considering the answers that were given. I've often illustrated that from this vantage point. If you overheard a conversation that I had on the phone, suppose just a few moments ago I answer my phone, and you can only hear my side of the conversation. You hear the answers, and it's obvious I'm answering questions, but you don't know what the question was, but you can deduce that from the answers I give. So if I said, yes, we're, we're having one at 9.50, but we're not having another today, what was the question? Are you having service today? Or are you having any service? Are you having service? In, they're asking something about that. And then if I said, well, we're having one this evening, but it's uh, at 5.30 on Zoom is where that'll be. They're asking, do you have an online presence? Or something along that line. You have a general idea of the question by listening to the answer. So as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, these must have been the questions or something very similar. Because this is what he answers. Is marriage lawful? Must those who are married continue in marriage? What about continuing with an unbeliever in marriage? Are such marriages legitimate? That is, a believer to an unbeliever. And what about children born to those unions? Are those legitimate children? And what if an unbeliever leaves and departs? What does the believer do? How shall they address that? Should virgins marry? Should widows marry? And if so, have they sinned? Those are questions that he addresses. So if you don't already have your Bible open, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and let's make a quick run through the chapter. Because what we're going to do is take a quick run through the chapter and then come back and learn some things from that chapter that are very important. So don't get excited that we're going to make a quick run through the chapter and we're done. We're not going to be done when we make that quick run. So let's make a quick run through the chapter and see what it's about. There are three major sections to the chapter. Here's the first. Is it lawful to marry? Verses 1 to 9. What happens here? Well, he addresses this question. Is it lawful to marry? And his answer is, it's good not to marry. It's good for a man not to touch a woman. He said at verse 1. Beginning at verse 6, he said, 
that are, verse 7, I wish that all men were even as myself. I wish all men were single. It has to be interpreted in light of something we'll come to in a moment. But he said, it is not good to marry. Then he says, but marriage is proper and right. That's not a contradiction at all. And he says that you're to marry in order to avoid fornication, verse 2. And then there's some obligations within that, verses 3 to 5. But if you can't contain, it is better to marry than to burn with desire. So he answers the question, is it lawful to marry? Here's the second. Must those who are married continue in their marriage? What about a case of a person who is a Christian and, uh, I mean, one who is already married, should they continue in that marriage? And so his answer to that in verse 10 and 11 is don't depart, don't divorce, don't end that marriage. Yes, continue in the marriage. Well, what about a specific case where a believer is married to an unbeliever and his answer is don't depart, don't divorce, don't leave them. And then he says, remain in the same state in which you were called. In other words, if you were married to a non-Christian when you became a Christian, then stay in that marriage and don't end that marriage. So his answer to the question, must those who are married continue in marriage? His answer is yes. There is a third section of the chapter, and that is, should virgins and widows marry? So beginning at verse 25, he suggested it's not good to marry. He said, now concerning virgins, I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give judgment as whom the Lord uh, is in mercy has made me trustworthy. I suppose, verse 26 now, that it is good because of the present distress that it is good for a man to remain as he is, that is, remain unmarried. So what about virgins? Well, it's better not to marry. But he said if they do marry, they haven't sinned. Well, what about uh, widows? Should they marry? And he said if they do, it's better not to, but if they do, let them marry in the Lord, verse 39. Now that's a quick summary through the chapter. He's answered three major sections or three major questions with a lot of sub-questions in that. Now let's talk about 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and I want to approach it from the vantage point that this is a practical but an abused text. It is a practical text, you're going to see that, but it is a greatly abused text even in our present time and even in our present circumstance. Now let's start first of all with the setting. Let's talk about the setting of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And let's turn to verse 26, because at verse 26 we have some information that is important for us to unlock the context of the chapter, chapter 7. There's much in the chapter makes no sense at all, does not harmonize with the rest of the Bible unless we understand verse 26. So what's verse 26 all about? Let's talk about the setting. At verse 26 he says they are in the present distress. You might underline that at verse 26. I suppose, therefore, that it is good because of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is, because of the present distress. Now let's analyze that phrase, and let's start with the words. Let's just define some words. There are two words here, present and distress. Let's start with the idea of the, uh, the distress. First of all, the distress there says it means calamity, distress, or straits. BDAC says it means the state of distress or trouble, distress, calamity, or pressure. Lonida says that it means trouble, distress, troublesome times. Now, the word can mean necessity. In fact, that is a primary definition of the word that is translated distress here. We'll come back to that a little bit later. But a secondary meaning, and 
in this context, most lexicographers, which these are, these are not commentators, these are lexicographers, who suggest that it means distress, calamity, trouble, distress, pressure, or trouble sometimes. Now let's look at another word that's used here, and that's the word present. The word present, Bedag says, it means be now, happen now, or current. So the present distress has to do with some trouble, some pressure, some distress, some calamity that is present or is current. Not in the future, not in the past, but it's going on right now. That's the present distress. Now let's look at some translations that may help us on that. Some other translations may give us some insight. The American Standard said the distress that is upon us, giving us the, pre the idea of the present distress. The New Century Version, which is a little more free and eclectic, it says the present time is a time of trouble. But that's a good concept. The present time is a time of trouble, he says. The New International Version says the present crisis. The NET, which is a little more wooden, but it suggests it is the idea of impending crisis. And furthermore, Darby says it means the present necessity. There is that, that necessity. That is the primary definition of the word, I understand. And so here is a necessity or a present necessity. Now bear with some quotations as we give some comments. Now we're talking about commentators. The, the comments are not true because the commentator said it, but they may give us some insight as to what they think this present distress means. We're going to look at a varied, uh, varied ideas here. So not every commentator is going to agree on that. And we're going to come back and draw some conclusions from this. Let's start with Albert Barnes. What is this present distress? He said, in the present state of trial. The word distress denotes calamity, persecution, trial. And he cites Luke 21. Where it talks about the destruction of Jerusalem being called a distress. Is what he's talking about. Pulpit commentary says, for the present distress, rather an account of the pressing necessity. There's that primary use of the term. In the urgent and trying conditions which at the present moment surround the Christian life, which is prophesied as the woes of the Messiah. And he cites Matthew 24 in the destruction of Jerusalem. Not that saying that's what it is, but that term is used that way in that context. That's all they're saying. R.C.H. Linsky said this. He said, by the distress, Paul refers to the, to the painful and terrible experience which the confession of Christ may at any time bring upon the believer. Paul had many such experiences, and the Corinthians may well recall the hostile Jews tried to do to Paul in the very city of Corinth. The days of the extensive pagan persecution were drawing nigh. And then he gives an illustration of a girl that marries and then has children, how she has now tr double trouble and even triple trouble, he says, when the husband is involved, that is, in the persecution, that is, when she, he becomes involved in the persecution or being persecuted, then what about the children? He's dead on right about what that context is dealing with. Let's go to Lang, and Lang gives us a little varied concept. He says the present distress means either something urgent or some urgent necessity. According to some, the famine of Claudius, according to others, marital cares and sufferings, and he raises a question like, not sure where that comes from. 
and according to others, the oppression and persecution of Christians, according to Moeller, and the eradication of sexual impulses in marriage, or were it better to understand it by some impending catastrophe just on the point of occurring, just starting, or may it be a fearful crisis or bitter conflicts just preceding the second coming of Christ, which is anticipated as being there, which is a common concept of some of the modern commentators. We'll come back to that a little bit later. G. Campbell Morgan said, I do think that he is referring to local circus conditions. I think he is referring to the pressure of circumstances in the midst of which the church was living at Corinth. That's interesting because we're going to give evidence from the context in a moment. A couple of more and we'll be done with these quotations. The distress, Lipscomb said, means the persecution then raging against the Christians and Burton Kaufman suggested it's the situation at Corinth was probably the local outburst of persecution, persecutions which became much general, more general at a later date. So now, looking at all of that, let's talk about the different views of the present distress. What is it? Well, it seems to be some trial, some think, near the end of time, maybe that's impending. Now, that's not what it's saying, and I'll tell you why it's not saying that. Some argue that what Paul was talking about is Paul is concluding the time of the end is near. It's coming soon, but Paul was wrong about that. Well, if he was wrong about that, he may be wrong about other things if he's writing by inspiration. That doesn't work. That's a common thought, that he's talking about some kind of tragedy near the end of time, and it's coming soon from the vantage point of Paul. Well, what didn't come soon? Some think it's a severe famine. That's a possibility. But most of uh, others think it's an oppression or a persecution of Christians. Now, let's go further and let's talk about the conclusion and how at least I've drawn this conclusion. It seems to be some form of trial, some form of persecution or some form of oppression, perhaps in its early form that later becomes more general and evidence of that. Well, he's mentioned persecution in the context of the book. Let's go to chapter 4. It won't take time to read this in the interest of time. But in chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians, beginning at verse 9, he talks about how the apostles had suffered persecution, and they were well aware of that. So some have argued it's not persecution because that really wasn't rampant through Christianity or embarking upon Christianity at the time. Well, it may not have been in a general sense. But the apostles had already been suffering persecution here. Look at chapter 15 and in verse 3. He mentions of how he fought with beasts at Ephesus. And he's, by the way, writing from Ephesus at the time. So he introduces the concept of persecution in the context of the book. Perhaps it's a general persecution, but it's more likely some local matter that was impending upon those who were at Corinth. There is a present distress. Now what about the time of that? By the time, I'm not talking about what year, because it would be, if it's present, it's at the time that he's writing. The time he writes this letter to Corinth, it's going on at the present. But I want you to notice verse 29. Verse 29 mentions the time is shortened, which suggests to us in verse 29 that this seems to be a short, severe period of persecution. It seems to be parallel in thought to Matthew chapter 24 and verse 22, where in the destruction of Jerusalem. This is not talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in verse 29. Matthew 24 is. I'm just saying it's parallel in concept. That if the time were not shortened, the elect could not be saved. In other words, God's mercy was on the elect, the people of God, because he shortened the time or allowed that time to be shortened in the persecution. 
So there seems to be a short, severe period of persecution that the Christians are going through. Now that's going to harmonize with the instructions we're going to see in the context. Now that explains a lot. Verse 26, the present distress, becomes the key to understanding much of the chapter that otherwise would not make any sense. How so? Well, I want you to go back to verses 1 to 9. He says it's better not to marry. Now erase this idea of the present distress, and you tell me how that harmonizes with it's good for a man uh, that a, a man who has a wife has found a good thing, Proverbs 22. Or maybe Genesis chapter 2, that it's not good that man should be alone, I'll make him a help meet for him. So God said it's not good to be alone, you need to be married. You don't have to be married, it's not commanded, but it's not good to be alone. And if a man finds a wife, he finds a good thing, but Paul says it's not good to be married. So it explains why it's better not to be married during this trial and tribulation that is short. During that present distress, it's not good. Now look at verse 33 and 34, here's why. He said, but one who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And verse 34, there's a difference between a wife and a virgin. An unmarried man cares about the things of the Lord, how he may please, how he may be holy, both in body and in spirit. But he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please, how she may please her husband. What's that all about? What he's saying is if you are single during this trial and tribulation and persecution, it's going to be a whole lot better to go through that trial than to worry about what it does to your mate. If you're married during that time and you say, we're going to serve God, we're going to not denounce Christ, we're going to be faithful, they may persecute us, they may even kill us, you think about your mate and what you're going to put them through, particularly if they're not a Christian and you're forcing them to go through the very same thing when they don't even hold to that faith. Now that makes sense. Because of the present distress. I'll tell you something else it explains. Verse 39. The idea of marrying a Christian. Here is the widow. If she marries, let her marry in the Lord. Now you may take the view that it's saying anybody in any time, in any period, if a widow marries again, she has to marry a Christian. Okay. But early in the chapter, he said it wasn't wrong for her to be married to, to a non-Christian. Wasn't wrong. But he's wrong over here. I have a hard time with that. It makes sense in the present distress. That if she remarries, if she marries somebody that will have the same faith and the same dedication and willing to endure the same thing, it'll be far better for her and the pressure will not be on. More about that here in just a moment. Now let's move and talk about the lesson. Now I know what the present distress is. I know the setting. Let's learn some fundamental lessons that are very practical. I said it's a practical chapter, so here we go. Look at verses 1 to 9. I learned from this chapter that there are times when it's better not to marry. Marriage is great. It is the creation of God. God said it's not good that man should be alone. And when we get through praising the greatness of marriage, there's still times when it's better not to be married. And I see that in verses 1 through 9. Like what? What occasions? Well, when your faithfulness and dedication may create a strain in your marriage. That's what he's talking about in this context. Because of your faith and your dedication, but your mate may not have that same faith and same dedication. And your faith and your dedication may cause a strain in the marriage. More about that in a moment. But perhaps that may be better worded if we go from the other direction. It could be that your marriage is causing a strain on your faithfulness and your dedication. Because someone is married to someone who doesn't have the same strength of dedication and devotion, that may cause a strain on their faith and their dedication and their service to the Lord. There'll be a time when it's better not to be married. Not saying marriage is bad, not saying marriage is wrong, not saying you've sinned if you marry in that myth. But if you're going to be in that kind of marriage, you'd be better not to be married. 
maybe when you don't understand the purpose of marriage. There are those who experience the premarital relationship outside of marriage. They live together for a while and then they decide, we want to get married. They don't have a clue of the purpose of marriage. You don't understand the purpose of marriage. Why do you want to marry? It's better not to be married if we don't have an understanding of the purpose of marriage, verse 2. Here's another point from the same context. When we're not willing to fulfill the obligations of marriage. We'll say more about that in just a few moments. But if one is not willing to fulfill whatever obligations, these in this context, or obligations in any other context, it'd be better not to be married. You say, I want to get married. I want to have a husband. I want to have a wife. But I'm not really interested in doing what I'm supposed to do as a husband or wife and fulfilling all of those obligations scattered through the New Testament. You'd be better not to be married. We look at verses 10 and 11 when we don't understand the permanence of marriage. In verse 10, verse 11, verse 12, verse 13, four times he argues for the permanence of marriage. We're coming back to that. If we don't understand that marriage is permanent, we'd be better not to be married. Those who are regular members have heard this many times. For the sake of our visitors, I'll repeat it again. That I've kept records of those, or at least kind of kept up loosely with those that I perform wedding ceremonies for. With every person I ever get that I perform a ceremony for, I always ask them before they have a ceremony, do you understand the permanence of marriage? And they said, oh yes. Do you understand that you can't get a divorce just for any cause? Oh yeah, we understand. Do you understand that when you have a fight, you can't run off to mom and dad, that you're going to have to work your problems out and keep it together? This is till death. Be oh yeah, we understand. At least 50% have ended in divorce already. At least. They didn't understand. They'd be better not to get married, wouldn't they? Here's another. Look at verse 32 and 33. Verse 32 and 33 argues for the fact that in a married circumstance that you're going to naturally, if you're what you should be, want to try to please your mate. You want to do what's best for them. You want to protect them. You want to take care of them. That's why the persecution is going to be a hardship on the marriage and maybe a hardship on your faith. But if one is entering into marriage and they're not going to try to please their mate, they would be better not to be married. When we're not going to follow God's plan, whether it be the plan of leadership and submission, the plan of communication, or the plan of love and respect, it'd be a time when it'd be better not to be married. Here's another lesson I learned, verses 3 to 5. There are obligations in marriage. So beginning at verse 3, let the husband render to his wife affection due. And likewise, also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, nor the uh, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. What's his point? His point is this. It's in the context of conjugal rights and the intimacy in marriage. But here's the point. And we're, I'm going to come back to the point, but let's get the point first, and then we'll see how we got there. What he's saying in the context, it's better not to be married in the present distress. But if you do, remember there are some responsibilities and obligations within that marriage relationship. Don't take what I'm saying over here, Paul is arguing, but it's better not to be married as saying celibacy is the ideal so that if you get in marriage, you're going to live like you're celibate. If you do get married, there are obligations within that marriage. So keep in mind we're talking in the context of intimacy or the context of rights. Now, what he's saying in this context, that's not just a liberty, but it is a responsibility. Notice two words that are used here in this context. Render. 
The word means to pay. According to Seiki Kubo, and those familiar with Kubo, knows they're usually, he usually gives a summary of Liddell and Scott. So when it says it means to pay, due is the word debt or obligation or duty, Kubo says. Used of paying taxes, by the way. Chapter 13 of Romans. Verse 5 says it's not to be withheld except by agreement. Look at verse 5. Do not deprive one another except to be with consent for a time. Here's the point. I said we already made the point. I said we'd come back to that. That if you do marry, I'm saying it's better not, but if you do marry, remember their obligations and they're not to be taken lightly. Now that principle applies across the New Testament. Not just to this intimacy relationship, but other responsibilities the husband has, responsibilities the wife has, the responsibilities the parents have, that if you're going to enter into marriage, remember there are obligations within the marriage. That's very practical to understand. Here's the third thing I learned. And that is something about the permanence of marriage, verses 10 to 13. What about the permanence of marriage? Well, let's notice the context. Quite often someone will appeal to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 and 11, and tell us it's talking about separating. It's not talking about divorce, it's talking about separation. And so we have a right to separate from, we're not going to get a divorce, we know we shouldn't do that, but we're going to separate because the Bible says that if you depart, you can remain unmarried or, or uh, be remarried or remain single. The subject is not separation, it is divorce, and let me give evidence as to why we say that. The word depart means divorce. And you say, how do you know? Thayer says it means of divorce, and he cites 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 7 and verse 11, our very verse we're talking about, he cites in his lexicon. Bedag says it means of divorce, he cites the same verse. Says that's what that means. Well, let's give more evidence. The same word is translated put asunder. You remember in Matthew 19 in verse 6 where Jesus said that what God has joined together, let not man put asunder? It means divorce. Same word that is translated depart in our text. Very same word. Here's the evidence. Look at verse 11. Verse 11, when it's applied to the husband, he changes and uses the word divorce. Let her not depart. Now notice this with me at verse 10. A wife is not to depart from her husband, but when he turns around to give the same instructions, notice he says at verse 11, he said a husband is not to divorce his wife. That's the same thing he just said. But he uses another word. Let me give you one more evidence of that. Look at verse 11. When she does depart, it leaves her in an unmarried state. Compounding evidence. We're talking about divorce. All right? Let's go a little bit further. I want you to notice that in 1 Corinthians 7, 10, and 11, there is no permission that is given. It is always interesting to me that people make an appeal to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 saying it gives permission for divorce when there is no permission there. That's like the parent telling the child, do not go outside. Do not go outside. Do not go outside. And do not go outside. And if you do, we're going to talk about it when we get home. And the child says, Mom, Dad just gave me permission to go outside. How foolish. No, they said, don't go outside. But if you do, we're going to talk about it when you get home. So let's look at this context. The text says, look at verse 10. Look at verse 10 with me, if you will. Verse 10, a wife is not to depart from her husband. But in if she does depart, let her remain unmarried to be reconciled to her husband. The prohibition says, do not depart. 
But and if she does depart, does not grant any permission, but is simply saying, here's what's to be done if you violate that prohibition. Let me give you a parallel to that. John 2 and verse 1. John said, I write to you that you might not sin. John, are you saying we ought to sin? No, no, no. I'm saying don't sin. Here is a prohibition. Do not commit sin. So John is saying, I write unto you that you sin not, he said. Then he said, if any man sins... We have an advocate. Oh, he just gave us permission to sin, didn't he? No, no, no. He didn't give us permission to sin. What he did was, if you violate the prohibition, which is wrong, here's what you do. It's contingency law. Used all through the Bible. So the point is, do not divorce. So let's go back to verse 10. Let's notice four times in this context. Look at verse, verse 10. Verse 10 said, a wife is not to depart, not to divorce her husband. You say, there's an exception. There may be, and there is. Chapter 5, 32 of Matthew, 19, of Matthew. But it's not mentioned here. He's dealing with the rule. Don't divorce. Look at verse 11. A husband is not to divorce. Look at verse 12. He says, let him not divorce her. And verse 13, let her not divorce him. Four times. Don't divorce, don't divorce, don't divorce, don't divorce. It's like, don't go outside, don't go outside, don't go outside, don't go outside. But if you do. We're going to talk about it when we get home. No permission given. None at all. I learned something about the permanence of marriage. Which tells me why this is so important. It's time it's better not to get married. If I don't understand the permanence of it, if we're getting into a marriage circumstance, we need to recognize this is till death do us part. Somebody's going to do wrong if we end it before death. Here's another lesson I learned. <clears throat> Faith and spiritual matters are more important than marriage. The marriage is very, very important. Marriage was created by God. Marriage is so important that if you end that marriage without your mate having committed the sin of fornication or without death, God holds you accountable for that. But verse 15 is going to tell me that faith and spiritual matters are more important than your marriage. Now look at verse 15, 1 Corinthians 7, 15. If the unbelieving departs, let him depart. The question is, why is the unbeliever departing? Either, either the text gives us no clue, or the text is indicating it by the nature of the questions that have been asked. I suggest that the nature of the questions point to a situation where one mate becomes a Christian and now an unbelieving mate suffers along with the Christian in this present distress. They may decide to depart. What do we do in this circumstance where a Christian is married to a non-Christian? Verse 12 is the question. Stay together. Verse 14, what about children coming out of that? Verse 14 says they're legitimate children. Well, what if that unbeliever decides to depart? Why would they depart? Because of the present distress. Many have suggested perhaps the Christian is given the alternative marriage or Christ. It's me or it's Christ. Now, you've got to make up the decision what you're going to do. If you keep professing this faith in Christ, imagine your mate telling you this. You believe in Christ and you're being persecuted. You may be threatened. Your house ransacked. A gun may be put in your face. You may be, try to be stopped from going to worship. 
by the authorities. You may be beaten because of your faith and your non-Christian mate is saying, I'm tired of this. I'm tired of our house being threatened. I'm tired of you being beaten, our children being threatened. You either give up Christ or you give up me. It's one or the other. Which way is it? And the text says, if the unbelieving depart, let them depart. Are you reading with me now? Verse 15, a brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. The word bond here is not the same word for marriage bond of verse 39 in Romans 7 verses 1 to 4. It's a word that means enslaved. I won't bore you with all the quotations from the lexicographers, but there are multiple lexicographers that we could cite. That it means enslavement. The tense of the Greek here, the present tense, means not only are they not enslaved now, this is an enslavement that you've never been under. So whoever you are now, and in a marriage state, you've never been under this bondage. So what's the point of it? The point is, you've never been enslaved to, a, to your marriage to save it at the expense of your faith. Anytime your mate gives you the ultimatum, you give up your faith or you give up me, it's one or the other, you're never enslaved to that marriage to save it at the expense of your faith. None of us are. So what I'm learning from verse 15 is a very practical thing. Not only a refutation of some error, but I'm learning a very practical thing about faith and spiritual matters are more important than our marriages. Think how important your marriage is. But your faith and your spirituality is far more important. Don't save your marriage at the expense of your faith. That's the point I'm learning. Now let's spend the rest of our time talking about the abuse. I said it's a practical but abuse text. We need to know the thing. We need to know some lessons. But how this text is abused. We'll quickly run through three and focus on the last. The reason I quickly notice three abuses is because we basically answered them as we ran through some of the material so far. But here's one of the abuses of it. Some cite 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 and 11 to justify divorce for any cause. We can get a divorce for causes other than fornicate. Well, well, 1 Corinthians 7 said, don't divorce, but if you do, it's okay. Well, that's not what the text said, but I remind you this is non, uh, non-permissive in its, in its concept, context. We've already shown that. In fact, there's an emphatic prohibition against divorce. He specifically told them not to divorce, verses 10 and 11. Didn't give any exception. That's found elsewhere. But not in this text. It wasn't found. This is contingency law. Much like telling the child, if you go outside, we're going to talk about it when we get home. That's no permission. That's just saying we'll deal with that when we get home. That's contingency law. Here's a second abuse of the text. To justify divorce and remarriage among non-Christians and those who are married to non-Christians. This is what that, all that controversy was about. You may not have kept up with that through the 80s and 90s. But all that controversy that we've talked about so many times about the Haley controversy, Haley's position, Bell's position, James Bell's, those guys were arguing time and time again that the non-Christian is not amenable to the law of Christ. Where did they appeal? They appealed to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And here was the argument. The argument is, verse 10, Paul said, Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord. Now verse 12, But to the rest, I am not the Lord, he said. What's he talking about? Well, the argument is that the Lord's teaching does not apply to non-Christians or mixed marriages. 
like verses 10 and 11, doesn't apply to non-Christians because he talks about non-Christians in verse 10 and 11. You may want to think about this a little bit later, but let me just throw this out for your, your food for thought, that if the expression, I am not the Lord, means the Lord's teaching doesn't apply to mixed marriages, then the phrase, not I but the Lord, must mean that Paul had nothing to say that applied to Christians. That should be verse 12 instead of verse 10. Here's the point of the context. There are some specific questions that have been raised, and that's what he means by the rest, the rest of the questions. There are some specific questions that the Lord did not address in his, directly address in his ministry. doesn't mean his, his, his teaching didn't apply, but the Lord did not specifically address the question of a Christian married to a non-Christian. Verse 15, not under bondage, does not refer to the marriage bond. It's a different word. It refers to enslavement, something you've never been under. We have been under, if we've been married, the marriage bond, Romans chapter 7. Let's go to one more, and then we'll look at one final one, the fourth one. Some abuse the text to justify staying in a marriage they already have, no matter what it is. Look at verse 20. Verse 20 says, let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. So whatever mate you had when you obeyed the gospel, you keep that mate. So you may have divorced and remarried and divorced and remarried and divorced and remarried and you're in your fifth mate. And now you become a Christian, you just keep that one because you remain in the marriage in which you were called. And that's the thought and that's the contention. The context is dealing with a marriage of a believer to an unbeliever. That's the context. Context is always important. And if you are married to an unbeliever, you keep that unbeliever. Verse 10, or verse 12 and 13, don't divorce. If they decide to divorce you, then let it go, but, but don't you divorce them. And furthermore, he says, down at verse 20, remain in the calling in which you are called. Paul, you're saying it's better not to get married. So if, if I'm married to a non-Christian now, uh, and I've obeyed the gospel uh, should, should, should I just divorce him? No, no, don't divorce him. Keep that mate that you had when you were married. It is in the context of believers and unbelievers, Christians and non-Christians being married. It is not in the context of unscriptural marriages. If we apply it to unscriptural marriages, the consequence would be, and this is not hypothetical, many brethren have run into this in Africa as they go to evangelize. A man caught in polygamy, when he obeys the gospel, he has five wives. That's not unreal. Leslie Dieselkamp and others ran into that a number of years ago as they would go to Africa and preach the gospel. Here's a man, they preach the gospel and he has five wives. Well, remain in the calling in which you're called. Why don't you just keep all of them? Because you're to keep the mate that you have when you're... No, you don't do that. That doesn't apply. Because it's dealing in the context of a believer to an unbeliever. But one final thing and the lesson will be yours. Here's another abuse that I'm very concerned about in our present day, and that is to justify changes during this pandemic. I've heard more about 1 Corinthians 7 in the last eight weeks than I have probably in the last eight months. As they talk, as people talk about the present distress. What is being said about the present distress? How is the present distress being used? Well, the idea is the COVID-19 pandemic is often being referred to as the present distress. This is our present distress. If we just stop at that juncture, I might be willing to grant this is our present distress. It is troublesome, that's what the word distress means, and it is present, isn't it? 
But many of those who are appealing to that, I don't think they really want to appeal to this text because they also tell us this, what's going on, particularly the pressure being put on churches to close the doors, is not to be compared at all with persecution. You know, that's what that is. Can't have it both ways. It's either, if you want to use this text, use it in its context. I'm willing to grant this as a present distress. But here's the idea. The idea is that during the present distress, there are things you don't normally do that, I mean, that, that you don't do that you normally would. Let me go over that again so you understand. The argument has been made that 1 Corinthians 7 shows that there are things that you don't do during the present distress that you normally would do, like marriage, for example. That's something you normally do, but you don't do that in the present distress. So we don't worship during the present distress, is the idea. So here's the application that's been made. That justifies canceling all of our services. Well, why should we cancel all of our services? The governor, by the way, never told us to do that. We've kept close tabs on that. Never told us to do that. So why cancel all the services, including the AM service, have none at all? Well, some have appealed to the fact, well, we need to do that because the, the present distress. There are things you normally would do that you just don't do during the present distress. And some have argued that it justifies having the Lord's Supper at home because that's the best you can do under the circumstances. Under the present distress, that's the best you can do. We don't have an assembly, so you just have the Lord's Supper at home. More common than that is this, that in many cases, no formal argument is being made, but in the context of justifying changes and doing things different, even things which we can't find in the scriptures necessarily, we talk about our present distress. And everybody knows they're talking about 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 21, because that's the only text I know deals with that. So let's respond to that concept. The context of 1 Corinthians 7 is dealing with marriage, which is a liberty and not something commanded. That is important. When we answered all the other errors on abuses of 1 Corinthians 7, we always go back to the context. Let's go back to the context on this one. The context is dealing with a liberty, not something God has commanded us. The thing we might forego would be marriage, which is neither commanded nor forbidden. You don't have to marry. It's not commanded. Nor is it forbidden. You can get married if you want to. Even in the present distress, you can. Nothing wrong with that. If you're married, you've not sinned, the text said. Verse 28. If 1 Corinthians 7 justifies not following God's commands, like assembling and changing the Lord's Supper from the pattern, then I wonder, could we change the day of the Lord's Supper because of the present distress? What if the governor said, I don't want to see anybody worshiping any churches gathered on Sundays? Well, under the present distress, I guess we'll just do it on Saturday. Would that be okay? Would that be all right to do that? Because this is the present distress, after all. There are things you do different during the present distress that you don't normally do. Could we change the elements of the Lord's Supper? Suppose during the present distress, you know, some things have become kind of scarce during the present distress. Suppose grape juice becomes scarce and we can't get a hold of it real easy. Could we change the elements? Have another kind of juice? Let's have apple juice. 
Because that's the best you can do under the circumstance of the present distress. There are things you do during the present distress you wouldn't normally do. That's the thought. I wonder if we could change the conditions of salvation during the present distress. Because you're supposed to be social distancing and in order to baptize someone or have someone baptize you, they have to get close together. And we want to practice social discipline, can, uh, dis distancing. Can, could we say, well, you know, under most, most circumstances we would tell you to be baptized, but 1 Corinthians 7 shows that there are things that you would normally do you don't do during the present distress, and so we're not going to baptize you. Would that be all right? Let's look at the rest of the book. I don't mean by that we're going to go through the rest of the book. I'm going to look at a couple of chapters in the rest of the book. The rest of the book, not only was chapter 7 during the present distress, but Paul wrote the rest of the book during the present distress. Does that not make sense? Unless we miss that, I want to say that again. Does it not make sense that Paul wrote the rest of the book during the present distress, and not just chapter 7? You see, they were still assembling during the present distress, weren't they? This was the present distress. Remember that? It's present. Remember that word? But chapter 11 says they were coming together for the Lord's Supper. Supposed to be, but they made a common meal out of it. They abused it. They were still assembling. During the, during the present distress. Chapter 14 shows the same thing, that there was an abuse of the spiritual gifts when they came together in one place in the assembly. That's in the assembly. By the way, the definition of an assembly. I want to suggest to you the regulations concerning the Lord's Supper still applied. They were to observe the Lord's Supper in a proper manner. They were to come together to observe the Lord's Supper. Verse 20, verse 33, when you come together to eat. By the way, that was stated during the present distress. That's interesting to me. We use 1 Corinthians 7 saying, we're going to have the Lord's Supper at home, and, and it's okay, and elders are saying, that you just do that. You go ahead and do that at home even though these passages show it was in the assembly, verse 20, verse 33. You won't find another example any, or inference or anything concerning the observance of the Lord's Supper other than in the assembly. You won't find it. But we argue that it's all right because of the present distress. And yet the present distress applied was going on when that passage was written. And furthermore, look at chapter 14. The regulations concerning the assembly, the abuse of, the Lord, abuse of uh, spiritual gifts, how they come together and they all speak at one time. Not, not all speak at one time, but speak one at a time. Do those still apply when the distress is going on? Oh, no, we're, we're in a present distress. We don't normally let everybody talk at one time, but we're going to in this assembly because we're in a present distress. No, this was written during the present distress. The rest of the book was written during the present distress. Indeed, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is a practical but abused text. Let's understand the setting context. There's some practical things to learn about our marriages, about the permanence of marriage, about times it's better not to be married, obligations within marriage, and about how your faith and your dedication and your spirituality is far more important than even your marriage circumstance. And then it's an abuse text to justify everything from divorce for every cause. You can remarry if you're Divorce and remarry as many times as you want if you happen to be married to a non-Christian, to keeping whatever mate you have, to saying we can do pretty much whatever we want during the pandemic because we're in a present distress. 
It is indeed abused, and yet a very practical text. There may be one or more present this morning who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith in Christ, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?